0: Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander and as always I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of who is currently now in Budapest, Hungary at Central European University. A very good afternoon to you Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, you and I have been talking about for the past couple of weeks in particular uh, a number of different Chinese economic policies that have made a lot of news. We've talked about the One Belt, One Road, the China Maritime Silk Road, which is this new trading route that Xi Jinping uh, has announced over the past few years, and also the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. Now, this one's very interesting in part because it is really the first of the major Chinese policy initiatives on the, economic, on the global economic front to come to fruition after about two or three years of discussion. We first heard about the AIIB back in 2013. And I guess the question, Cobus, is why would a China-Africa podcast talk about the, uh, the an Asian infrastructure bank? Well, the answer is pretty clear, is that we don't really know the extent of what this bank is going to do. It's the first of the major... It's the first, what I'd say, major multilateral development agency in the post-Bretton Woods era. And I guess that's really where the questions are about the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. And we've been hearing more and more that it's going to have an impact far beyond just Asia. And in order to better understand the origins of the bank and why it might be important for regions like Africa, we are thrilled to have on the show today Professor Tang Xiao Yang, who's a resident scholar, at the Carnegie Tsinghua Center for Global Policy, as well as an associate professor in the Department of International Relations at the very prestigious Tsinghua University in Beijing. Professor Tang, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Okay, yeah. Uh, hello, Eric and Kobas for uni. Yes,
0: well, I guess let me start with, with a, you know, we'll start with a little bit of a background on on the bank and why it's important. But also, you know, tell us a little bit about why you think that there's been more and more talk outside of Asia about the potential impact of this bank. And I say this in part because just this past week, Donald Kebaruka, who's the president of the African Development Bank, you know, he publicly announced that he hopes the AIIB will expand its mandate to Africa. So there's a lot of anticipation, not only in Africa, but elsewhere around the world. And I guess why should people outside of Asia really be that Interested in a Chinese multilateral development bank?
1: I think the China the wants to use this multilateral bank as a uh, platform to uh, ex- to also facilitate its. Uh, uh, excessive uh, foreign exchange. But meanwhile, also to play a bigger role in the global, uh, financial and development uh, arena.
2: And how will how will this this expanded role um, of this new bank? How will it affect the other big development agencies that are already around, like the World Bank, for example? Mm-hmm.
1: I think the uh, China AIIB it's not necessarily a uh, challenge to the current system because China has already made it clear that this bank will follow uh, the standard of World Bank. So it's uh, the first step of China to really get in. you know, for, to uh, establish a multilateral institution. So it's still in the process of learning. So currently, then I think that for China, more important is to cooperate with the current uh, multilateral institutions. However, it's certain that China will have some different perspectives. But I think the cooperation is the ma- mainstream.
0: Well, there are 57 founding members, including two mm-hmm. from Africa. One is South Africa, and the other one is Egypt. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the bank, again, we don't really know a lot about the origins of the bank, but a lot of people think it goes back to the to the early 2000s, again, the arrival of Xi Jinping. Mm-hmm. The Chinese, for a long time, have been asking for a greater uh, role and more influence in the Washington-based international multilateral development finance organizations, namely the World Bank and the IMF. Uh, President U- U.S. President Barack Obama, he agreed to some extent, so he put forward to Congress uh, a bill to increase the share of votes for China in the IMF uh, up to 6%. Uh, that died on Capitol Hill. And this is a very important story in part because a lot of people believe that this is where the frustration that the Chinese felt that they were not being properly represented in these organizations as their economic clout and influence increased around the world. China, after all, is the second largest economy in the world, potentially going to be the first uh, even as soon as this year or next year. So – you say that, the Professor Tang, that the, that the really nobody has anything to worry about. Uh, clearly, a lot of people in the United States uh, disagree with that. Uh, the United States lobbied aggressively uh, against to persuade its allies to not join the bank. It failed. Former U.S. Treasury Secretary Lawrence Summers, he uses this as an example as a major defeat for the United States on the world stage, in part because it lobbied aggressively, it failed, China is now deploying this bank, and that really shows that a diminishing influence for the United States. When you look at Africa as a focal point for development finance, do you think that the United States' inability to dissuade its allies from participating in this bank will have an an impact in places like Africa, where more and more African leaders will look to China as a source of development finance and maybe start turning away from U.S.-led institutions?
1: I think uh, perhaps from the appearance, it looks like China is now uh, got a victory. But I think uh, for this uh, African and the European and the Asian countries, actually, a lot of them, uh, they, they are. Have uh, They are speculating, I think. China itself didn't expect uh, such uh, so many supports uh, uh, from the so-called Western uh, countries that are from Europe, from uh, uh, also from some developed countries, from Australia. I think that's actually beyond China's own expectation. Uh, it's true that uh, China has uh, a lot of uh, uh, yeah, this, uh, in the recent uh, growth for last uh, 30 years uh, China was uh, quite uh, successful and uh, people are uh, very interested in this uh, new rising uh, power but however I don't see it really as a uh, decisive uh, battle because uh, it's too early to tell I think uh, in fact, for China, there's uh, still a long way to go, and uh, uh, there's actually some uh, discussion saying that now with so many members, actually China may lose control of AIB. So that will be a new challenge.
2: I would actually wanted to ask you about that. Um, to uh, so Ben Stile and Dinah Walker, so they're, they're both um, they're fellows at uh, the Council on Foreign Relations. They published a piece in Courts magazine um, this week arguing that. If that that the U.S. should actually press Japan to also join the AIB, because that would actually mean that American allies would then have be able to outvote China um, on, uh, you know. Uh, so, like, how how much decision making power do you foresee China realistically will have in the future as the AIB gets gets off the ground?
1: Well, currently, the voting power will be distributed according to GDP. And uh, I think the China is uh, still the the largest. Uh, yeah, definitely will play uh, quite a quite bigger role. But with the fifty-seven uh, countries uh, in total, then I doubt uh, that china can really uh, do uh, can really do what it plan for because i thought uh I think that China uh, maybe at the beginning, China thought uh, the, uh, was uh, didn't um, uh, expect a, such uh, so many supports, and uh, I think the its own plan it hasn't really planned for us to handle such a big number. So right now, it is actually uh, for the Chinese uh, uh, team they are thinking about it, and I believe uh, that uh, at least uh, for the the beginning period, uh, the Chinese would uh, rather listen and uh, rather uh, coordinate, try to coordinate with uh, uh, all the partners uh, and uh, will not uh, be very assertive. Mm. You know, here in Southeast Asia,
0: I'm based here in Vietnam, there's a lot of anticipation about the bank, in part because a lot of the funds will be coming to this part of the world. So I was kind of surprised when I saw, you know, the article about Donald Kebruka of the African Development Bank, hoping that the AIIB will eventually make it to Africa. Based on your research and your understanding of the bank's mission, will it ever extend beyond Asia, or will the focus remain solely on well, Asia as it's named after an Asian infrastructure bank? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I think the priority will be projects in uh, Asia. Uh, that's a uh, uh, it- yeah, it's uh, implied uh, by its name but with uh, this uh, infrastructure uh, connecting Asia it will also uh, to some extent uh, uh, be related uh, to neighboring region like the, uh, Africa or some of the East Europe it's uh, actually also in line with this uh, one belt one road uh, uh, strategy so I think uh, it will re- these peripheral regions will be affected, but they won't be the focus.
2: Um, one thing that I was wondering about, actually, is what, what, how does this relate to the BRICS Bank? Um, you know, the, the the propounded BRICS Bank that, that that people people were very excited about a year or two ago. Um, I had assumed that the BRICS Bank had basically disappeared um, because I hadn't heard anything about it for a while. But now that um, China's Foreign Minister Wang Yi, when he was he was in South Africa about mm. a week ago, suddenly the BRICS Bank was back on the agenda. I was wondering, like, mm. wh- how does this bank relate to the BRICS bank and is this the, the beginning of, of uh, uh, you know, might there be even more Chinese-based kind of mm. development banks in the future?
1: Uh, yeah, I think the BRICS bank uh, has always been uh, in discussion. So it's not, it's uh, never been uh, abandoned. Uh, the problem is just uh, the BRICS bank, it's a more... We'll have more partnership, uh, so it's uh, not really dominated by China alone, unlike the uh, AIIB. The AIB uses uh, the model of ADB, right, which is dominated by Japan. So, and uh, it's clear that China uh, will have the majority share and will be the dominating driving force for the AIB. But BRICS Bank, uh, by its nature, it's a partnership of uh, five countries at least, and uh, it's a, a more complex uh, composition. So, therefore, That's why it's also moving more slowly. Uh, But uh, every uh, BRICS summit uh, will definitely address uh, some progress and uh, will push some uh, progress of the BRICS ban.
0: Professor Tang, I'd like you to step back a little bit and kind of put the AIIB into a broader context, into the kind of the, you know you know, the Xi doctrine, if for lack of a better word, you know, Xi Jinping's worldview. So over the past two or three years, we've seen a much more robust Chinese foreign policy, particularly in in Asia, in the South China Sea. Uh, uh, much tougher negotiations with the United States. Then we've seen this kind of new introduction of economic policies that have come out. Again, you talked about One Belt, One Road. Uh, we Also the Maritime Silk Road. And this is this very ambitious way to kind of integrate the world into the Chinese economy. And then on top of that, we've got the Asian Infrastructure Bank. What do all of these kind of announcements... And when you piece them together, what's the puzzle that we're seeing?
1: It's true that uh, Xi Jinping has a, a more uh, grand, uh, has a grand strategy of uh, uh, comprehensive uh, international engagement. Uh, but I think the uh, South China Sea and uh, Uh, the East China Sea, this conflict, some of the tension actually also warned him that uh, maybe a more cooperative uh, manner will be more welcomed by neighboring countries or by the international community so i think the uh one belt one road uh, it's a little different uh, from this uh, south china sea and uh, east china sea uh the like dispute, uh, territory dispute uh, during last two years. Because of this uh, one belt, one road, it's actually something uh, which is uh, a China specialty for about one or two decades, namely to uh, engage with uh, developing countries uh, uh, through economic uh, engagement, through economic cooperation and investment. And I think uh, the developing countries. Like this uh, approach, so and uh, yeah, and uh, based on this, I think China then uh, will play a more important role in this uh, multilateral institution. That's actually an uh, uh, upgrade of this uh, economic uh, statecraft. So not only just uh, giving loans uh, and the investment, but now also to really contribute something to the global economic governance. So I think the... So first, uh, yeah, to uh, in short... Uh, First, uh, this one uh, belt, one road, it's a little different from uh, the territory disputes uh, during the last two years. And uh, second, uh, I think the AIIB, it uh, actually uh, will work together with this one belt, one road and uh, will be uh, upgrading of the China's uh, traditional uh, economic uh, uh, statecraft.
2: Um drawing on that that point um do you also see that this is this is, uh, mean China might be shifting away slightly from buying so much american debt and that you know kind of the world the rest of the world can can hope that some of that investment would rather turn into more infrastructure or am i being overly optimistic
1: um, I think um, your uh, your observation is justified. So, uh, indeed, uh, the reason for establishing this bank, uh, it's partly uh, because of the excessive uh, foreign exchange. And China wants to uh, put it into a better usage uh, rather than just uh, buying debts. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, it, no matter what it is, we don't... In- have a full understanding of what the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank is going to be. But we, what we do know, though, is that major tectonic shifts are happening, at least in the development finance space, but also, uh, I will argue geopolitically, uh, you know, around the world. And, and really, these these announcements coming out of Beijing for the One Belt, One Road, the Maritime Silk Road, and also the Asian Infrastructure Bank are really part of these tectonic shifts that we're seeing. Uh, Professor Tang, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you, especially because you stayed up up so late uh, to to join us on the show, uh, Professor Tang Xiaoyang is a resident scholar at the Carnegie Tsinghua Center for Global Policy, and as well as being an associate professor in the Department of International Relations at Tsinghua University. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Okay, you are welcome. And, and Kobus, if people want to stay on top of uh, what you're reading and writing these days, now that you're in Budapest, what can uh, where can people follow you?
2: they will see me on our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash China Africa Project. And we update almost 24 hours a day. Um, And also I'm on Twitter at Stadenesk. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And you can find me on Twitter as well. I'm at E-O-Lander, E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R,
0: tweeting the top China and Africa headlines almost every day. Also want to put your attention to our new email newsletter. Uh, Every Monday it goes out with the top stories. uh, About five or six of the top headlines uh, from the world of China-Africa studies plus we put some academic articles and a podcast or two goes in there as well so you can sign up on our webpage at chinaafricaproject.com and of course if you want to follow this podcast just head over to itunes subscribe right there and leave us a comment uh, we'd love to hear from you on what you think of the show well we'll be back again very soon with another edition of the china in africa podcast thank you so much for listening